Good morning to each of y'all, and thank you for joining us in class today. Um, this class is probably going to be a little bit of a smaller class, but that's okay. We're still going to have a good time. And I know not everyone in here is necessarily a new or young Christian, but I appreciate uh, y'all being able to join us in here um, for all of this. Last week, we had a, um, a discussion about sort of what the church looks like, sort of what the Christian life is, and we base that out of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 5, verse 20, this really great section of just kind of general, hey, here's what Christian life looks like. These are the kinds of things you ought to do. These are the kind of things you don't need to do, stuff like that. So we, we rolled with that. Today, you're going to love the title of class. It's Who and What? is God. <laughs> That's kind of a grand, um, ambitious class subject, but we will uh, we'll roll along with this. Um, let me start off uh, with, uh, with this question that is, I, I think it's probably a pretty easy one. All right. What ideas about God or the, the divine realm do other religions have? So think about your world religion classes. What ideas about God or the gods do other religions have? What do you think? How much, how much control they have. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, issues of control, right? What else? It depends on the religion you're looking at, but something like on the opposite spectrum, the fact that you need so many gods to do so many different things because not one god can do all of those comments. Yeah. yeah, so you have... One versus many gods, uh, control slash power, right? There's some issues there. Uh, most, almost every pantheon uh, has a unique separation from humanity. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so like, are they moral? Yeah, that's good. Separate from humans. It's interesting to see how that that one pans out too. Um, do they occasionally fight with each other? Yes. yes, they do. Yes, they do. And so uh, we'll do something like partnership. Yeah. <clears throat> so partnership. Uh, oh, okay. And I've actually had this question. So are those gods moral? Right. So think about Greek gods and the goddesses, for example. Some are moral, right? Athena is a good example. Um, but others are not. Zeus yeah. is a dirty scoundrel. Yep. He is just a perv. Anyway, but yeah. Even the good ones are powerful. And even the good ones, yeah. Do sometimes make mistakes. Yeah, that's right. It, it is interesting when you kind of look at that uh, from an ancient perspective. Those gods seem very much like people who are just really powerful. Yeah. Question, um, we might have mentioned this before, at least under power, are all of those gods omniscient? Do they know everything? No, no they're not. So they're, we mentioned control or power, and specifically how some of that power is limited power. So, um, <clears throat> All right. Here's a fun, easy question for us to kind of bring that discussion of the ancient world into modern times. 
Are there any modern portrayals of God and goddesses you can think of? Modern portrayals. Uh, one of my favorite comics is a modern take on uh, the capture of Persephone. So okay. Oh, very so cool. Okay. God <laughs> I would say the Greek pantheon is very popular. Is it like a graphic novel or a yeah, non? Okay, so um, this word right here might clue you into kind of where I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So the Marvel, the Marvel universe, right? Everybody heard the name Loki before. Okay, Tom Hiddleston, man, what an actor. He's he's so personable and likable in real life, and he he plays a real scoundrel. Who is also likable? Like even even in the first time you see him, he's still kind of likable. Even when he cuts out that guy's eye <laughs> in, in Avengers. Uh, spoiler alert: if you haven't seen it from 2012, but like still, like he he's kind of charismatic. You know, it's kind of scary in a way because he presents him, He lands in Europe and presents himself yeah. as the guise of a charismatic totalitarian, which you know kind of sends your World War II <laughs> spine tingling. But yeah, uh, so like Loki's one. Who is perhaps related to Loki that we can think of? Ah, man, what a, what a massive human individual Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> Loki, Thor, right? Sir Anthony Hopkins, yeah? Um, Odin, and then I'm going to use various spellings there. hundred ways to spell on these, right? Uh, the Asgardians, okay. That's, uh, we're, I guess we're a Marvel class. Anybody want to throw in anybody from the other team who, who DC has kind of, right? like largely, uh, I know they have, so I don't know if they, I'm thinking of an Amazon in particular. Uh, Diana? Yeah, Wonder Woman, right? In, at least in the movies, she is for all intents and purposes, a modern day recreation of what the what ancient people thought their gods and goddesses could do right so we could have uh wonder woman on there um <clears throat> what's interesting there's in um the the dc movies their animated movies have a much uh, more robust storyline than their live action ones and in one of those movies hey dion you're welcome to join us i know you're just here to count but you count to us. And so you're welcome to join us. <laughs> See what I did there? Um, those animated movies has a mu like have a much more robust storyline. And there's one movie where at the end of it, when the Justice League kind of forms, Wonder Woman goes down the line and says, oh, it's neat to, be, to walk among a pantheon again. And she likens each member of the Justice League to one of the classic Olympian deities. Like, Batman's kind of dark and brooding, right? Well, he's Hades, yeah? Shazam has the powers of lightning. Zeus, Flash is super fast, Hermes. Okay, so you can see how it all, all goes down the line there. Um, but that is, uh, that's, that's that. Question, are these characters much different from these ancient characters? Is Tom Hiddleston's Loki omniscient or omnipotent no uh thor thor's pretty strong right he can take a star 
right into his face, uh, spoiler alert. But the, he, he's not all powerful, okay? Even Odin, right, the All-Father is what they call him, um, after whom Wednesday is named. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, different, uh, different way of pronouncing Odin. Thursday and Friday, Friday. Didn't know if you knew that. But our, the, the days of the week have almost all pagan names. Yeah, starting with uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And Le Saturday. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're, they're like... These guys are surprisingly kind of like these guys. They make, they're kind of morally uh, gray sometimes. Some make good decisions. Some learn from their mistakes. Some may eventually learn from their mistakes and then they die and then they learn from their mistakes again. <laughs> okay, so. Who is the very first person, I use the term person loosely, who is the very first person to do anything in the Bible? Yes! Like I said, I used the word person loosely because I didn't want to say, who is the very first spiritual being? Because I would give it away. So, um, God, right. Okay, another simple question. What is he doing when he is first introduced? Creating the world. Jerry? Yeah, yeah. Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And we will read a, a good section of this. I figure if we're, if we're going to start a class on the Christian life, it would be good to know who we're dealing with here. And so we're going to start with, well, we're going to start in the beginning. I figure that would be a good place to start. Mm -hmm. We'll start in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. And um, with this class, I know who's in here, right? I don't have to tell y'all that Genesis is the first book of the Bible. If you'll notice sometimes when I'm around folks that I don't think they have like a really solid grasp on everything, I'll try to give them some hints. Like, I know we've got some young Christians in here. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. So anyway, so um, that's something useful to do if you find yourself in a setting where you are also around some young Christians just... Don't assume that they probably know what you know, and you know, and tell them it's not. It's not like don't be ashamed if you have to go look at the table of contents. All right, Genesis chapter one, verse one. I'm going to read through this uh, for us, and I'll I'll skip some things and kind of keep you up to date with where I am uh, by giving you verse numbers. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless. And empty, formless and void is usually how you hear that said. What that means is there was stuff there, but it didn't do anything. Right? There was stuff there, but there wasn't really anything there in terms of function. It was wild and waste. Think about it like that. It's a cool Hebrew phrase. Tohu vavohu. That sounds kind of cool. The, now the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All right, we've got two persons now, two subjects now. God and the Spirit of God. And we have stuff. There's earth and water, and it's just kind of churning and wild, and there's nothing going on. But then God steps into that. 
Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good. And he separated light from darkness. Okay, so now we're starting to see in one of the first acts of creation, a thing is made and then it's separated. There's a, there's a thing, light, here, and now there's darkness. And God says, okay, this is good. Let's uh, look at verse 6. Let there be a dome or an expanse or a vault. It's kind of tough to translate this Hebrew word. So, uh, if you're reading an older translation, firmament is what it might say. Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters to separate it waters from waters. So God made the dome, separated the waters that were under the dome, so think sea, and the waters that were above the dome, think, well, rain clouds, but sort of. It, it, we're dealing with an ancient mindset of how they view the world. Yes, sir? I've heard theorized before that the, this, this was supposed to be very literal in the sense of like there was a lot more water up in the sky and the flood was as a result of bringing that down uh, and why the atmosphere was so significantly changed. That is one thing, uh, one way that I've heard people explain that before. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's right. That's, all of these are trying to capture this idea of this, um, this Hebrew word that's, that doesn't show up a lot in the rest of the Old Testament. So, um, verse 8. God called the dome sky, or the space, and there was evening and morning the second day. Verse 9. And God said... Let the water under the sky be gathered in one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters and he called seas and he saw that it was good. Okay, so we've seen when you walk into a dirty room, right? What do you need to do? You need to bring some order to the chaos. So God rolls up his sleeves and he's working with the stuff that's there. He's like, all right. You need to be over here, you need to be over here. We need to stretch this out and stretch that out. All right, waters, you belong here. Land, you're over here. And he's creating order, basically. Not, not a stringent, tyrannical order, but taming the chaos and bringing, he's maximizing the conditions for beauty and peace and goodness to, to happen. All right. Um, <clears throat> verse uh, 11 then God said let the land produce vegetation seed bearing plants trees and land that will bear fruit etc etc uh, take a look at the end of verse 12 God saw it was good verse 13 evening and morning the third day so again now this is three days of creation where God has made uh, some spaces for things. He's made sky, he's made waters, and he's made lands. And now he's beginning to fill, he's about to start filling those spaces. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day and the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Let them be lights. And it was so. Notice he never calls them sun and moon and stars. 
Because in an ancient mindset, those particular words were connected with certain gods and goddesses. So God just calls them lights. Or here in Genesis, he calls them lights. So that way the Israelites won't think, God created these other little gods and goddesses, so it's okay for us to worship them. No, no, no. He calls them. He creates the space on day one, and then he fills it on day four. And he's going to fill the space of day two on day five. And the space he made on day three, he's going to fill on day six. See how it's working there? So he goes on, and uh, you get the idea here. Let's get down to verse 26. As he has filled all these spaces, it probably would have saved us time had we just read it all the way through. (laughs) Then God said, let us, it does say us, right? Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And um, skip with me down to verse, chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he had rested from all his work. Okay, what do we learn about God in these verses? What do we learn about God in these verses? No, that's, that's a, not trying to be silly, that's a good point. Um, we kind of read through this, but have you heard before, how many times does God pronounce that something is good? Like if you, in, in these verses, yeah. If you had to take a wild stab at maybe a good biblical number. It yes, <laughs> it's seven. What do you know? Every, things are good, good, good. And then the seventh one, it's very good. He sits back and says, it's very good. There's a reason for that. Like what Keeley was saying, God is putting together an orderly, well-arranged, a beautiful world. Okay. Anything else? What do you learn about God in these verses? He does have a plan. Yeah. He does things in a very proper order. Um, what one thing could not survive without, he does not create without it. Yeah. He's got... Yeah. This, this thing goes here, and this thing goes here, and these things have their spaces, and these things have their spaces. And it's not harsh and strict. God has created the conditions for those things which he has placed to flourish in these environments. Yeah. Probably, yeah. 
Yeah, probably. Uh, another thing I kind of notice it's not really uh, notes on God, but something interesting is in Genesis one before Eve is created in Genesis two, he's, it's mentioned that man and women were created. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Gen- I, I think one way to read, like if you were to read Genesis 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, all that is kind of one chunk. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, gives us kind of a different take on creation. Where in Genesis 1, we see kind of a bir- bird's eye view of what's going on, and we've got all this beautiful order. Um, Jerry, when you finish... A job in a house everything is where it needs to be right those corners are nice and straight everything's level right it's not harsh and restrictive it's like this is how it ought to be this creates the conditions for you know maximum beauty or you know the flourishing of whatever activities are supposed to happen in this environment that is Genesis 1 Genesis 2 we zoom in and see okay So here's how some of this stuff kind of plays out. I think that's a good way to read these two chapters. What did you notice about Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, um, really 26 and 28? What are people supposed to do according to creation? Yeah, they've got a job. One thing that you see here is that these guys didn't really create humans because they wanted people to rule over creation, either with them or on their behalf. Sometimes it's an accident. Sometimes the gods are tired of hunting for themselves. They say, well, we'll make servants that will come feed us sacrifices. And that's not at all how we see Genesis presenting this. God creates representatives. That's us. In the image of God, God creates representatives to rule with him. All right. That's big picture stuff. Fast forward with me to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 through 8. Keely, would you mind reading those verses for us, please? Just Genesis chapter 6, 5 through 8. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of of human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth Okay. Why did God send the flood? Basically, yeah. It's really wild. I'm sure most of y'all either had when you were little or have currently for your little ones. Um, children's Bibles, right? Noah's Ark is, is about this cool floating zoo. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we skip over the whole part about, we skip over the whole part about how, well, everybody here was 
a murderer and a thief and a rapist and I mean you name name down the list of all the terrible things that humans do to each other and that was that was everybody except this one guy and his family and somehow for whatever reason we don't know exactly why but Yeah. They don't get flooded and everybody dying and they kill off and it was just Noah and his wife and what his kids, right? Yeah, his kids and three, and yeah. three sons and three daughters in law. Start civilization all over. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Ancient uh, so according to other I don't know if y'all knew this, but other ancient religions from Bible times also had accounts of a huge flood. According to those, why did those pagan gods want to destroy humans with the flood? Do you happen to know? I think they have to say, I don't think they would ever have, like, would have a reason that I know about. Like, the only way that I could think of them coming up with a logical reason is that somebody made one of the gods, like, angry, like Poseidon or something, that they would blame it on him and be like, we made him angry because we didn't do this thing yeah. to him. That's a good idea. What do you think? The Norse pantheon has a flood, but it's none of the gods' faults. Uh, in fact, it happens out of the gods' control, and they like scammer to go and get it fixed in time. They yeah. have no control over yeah. it. So they also have like the titans and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So like they've been not anybody's fault except for the bad guys, right? Yeah. And yeah, there's other, especially other ancient Near Eastern. So that's the technical way to describe that part of what you might sometimes hear called the Middle East. Um, other ancient Near Eastern accounts of different religions include flood stories. And one of the main reasons why those pagan gods destroyed humans with the flood is because humans were too noisy and they bothered the gods. They're too noisy. All right. And so after unsuccessfully trying to limit humans with drought and disease, the flood was the last resort. Okay. Now, how does this compare with what we just read in Genesis 6. Too noisy versus what? Absolute, yeah, absolute evil. Yeah. I turned it down to 68. It feels like it's not oh, really headed in that direction. Okay. Um, yeah. We're not just annoying. We're not just annoying. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a mild inconvenience. No, it wasn't. It was. It wasn't. Y'all won't shut up. It was. Oh my goodness. Was not the plan. Y'all are. Yeah. After being created in the image of God, you are completely, horrifically disregarding the fact that I've created all of you to be kind of co-rulers with me over this place. The Bible doesn't shy away from comparing God with pagan deities, and so although the pagan deities are often annoyed by humans, or treat humans as playthings, right? See, Zeus. Okay. The God of the Bible is consistently shown to care for humans. He longs to be with humans like he was in the Garden of Eden. And I think it's interesting that in Genesis 1, in, in the beginning of the Bible, it starts with God creating a garden where he will be with his people. If you fast forward all the way through to the end of Revelation, God is creating, once again, a space 
that looks very much like the Garden of Eden, where he will be with his people. That's beautiful. Man, it's so cool how the Bible kind of drops hints here and there about this new heaven and new earth that God's going to create. Anyway, God of the Bible longs to be with people like he was in the garden, and he's concerned when they mistreat each other. Other people who are the image of God. All right, fast, uh, let's uh, change uh, gears just a little bit. What are some negative stereotypes you have heard about the God of the Bible? Negative stereotypes. Either may at one time you believe these or have heard um, internet atheists say stuff like this. Wrathful. It's always the Old Testament God. Yes. Yeah, it's always the Old Testament God. These guys haven't taken a close enough look at Jesus. Jesus was all about love and stuff, but my goodness, he had some things to say about, uh, about judgment. Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the New Testament. So, anyway. Uh, what else? What, about, uh, what else about God? Is this, is this mostly it? Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just have to love people and then you're going to go to heaven. Like, there's that complete opposite side of that where they, 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 you have to think that he's real and then you're, you're set, you're in, you're ready to go. You don't have to change anything about what you do in your life. Yeah. Yeah. He's the, he's the, God is this great vending machine in the sky. And if you just put in your prayers, if you just put in your time at church, if you just put in. Your edible styrofoam cracker and grape juice, <laughs> you too can get God's blessings. Or, the way it goes in a lot of places, if you just send us your money, yes. those blessings will flow, man. I yeah. think one of the hardest ones, um, this is definitely a very popular internet atheist debate topic, is if God is all powerful and created all things, yeah. and he, therefore he must have created evil, and therefore God is evil. Yeah, I hear that one a lot too. That one's really boring because it's... It, you forget that tiny little thing that people call free will. Yes. Anyway, but um, ultimate source of evil. So, yeah, this is some stuff. Let's work with this section here, the sky vending machine. Yeah, that's true. Maybe an immature faith, right? Yeah, but at least you kind of bank on or affirm God's goodness here. Over here, it's, oh my goodness. Uh, it's an older movie these days, but how many of you remember Bruce Almighty? Okay, Jim Carrey. Smite me, almighty smiter. And Morgan Freeman, what a, what a guy to, to play God, right? With a voice like that. Anyway, um, he just kind of mocks it after. He's like, smite me, oh, mighty smiter. Okay. Anyway, Hunter, you were about to say something? I've seen Evan Almighty. Not Evan Almighty. That's the one with Steve Carell, right? Yeah. Uh, Noah yeah. 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 All right. What gives us or gives people these impressions? Can you think of anything in particular in the Old Testament? I mean, the flood would definitely be the wrathful. Um, the flood, yeah. It does happen. It does happen. 
ark is about to fall. Yeah. Just dead right there. Don't let it fall on the ground. He reaches out to grab it and. Well, I don't know. I don't remember if it's Old Testament or New Testament, but like when they're leaving the city of sin and the wife turns around and turns into Sodom. Sodom, yeah. Genesis 19, yeah. Smote. Uh, or the past participle would be smitten. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, that is that the one where he lied about his tithe. That might. Like, I think that's Acts chapter five. Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But from a Christian view, still same God, right? <laughs> okay. All right. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter five. Deuteronomy chapter five, verse nine. This is. This is hilarious. I get why people feel this way. I really do. But how many of you are familiar with the term cherry picking? Okay. Or maybe a more technical term, confirmation bias. You only, you only watch the, t the news networks that you agree with, right? You only follow the uh, Twitter or Instagram accounts that you agree with. You only pay attention to the people that you agree with. And so that way it feels like, well, yeah. It is only ever this way, this one way that I see it, and it is never any other way. That's the problem that internet atheists have. And if you're an atheist on the internet and you happen to be listening to this, uh, reach out to me, Kevin at kingscrossingcoc.com. I'd be happy to talk with you. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. Stop there. That's Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9. Wow. I don't want you worshiping those other gods. Here's the thing, though. Let me make sure that I've got space in my notes to say this. Okay, I do. Yeah. Here's the thing. Those other gods. The Israelites struggled or I'll just, I'll just ask this as a question. Did the Israelites sometimes struggle with faithfulness to God? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. No. All right. Not a tough question. Not a tough question. Okay. One of the reasons why God was so insistent, one of the reasons why God was so insistent on the Israelites worshiping him and not these other gods like Baal, or uh, there's a fertility goddess that was in the area of Canaan known, known as Asherah, or some of these others. You see kind of mentioned here. There's, a, there's like a weird fish god in, in the area of the Philistines known as Dagon. Um, the, one of the reasons why God is so insistent on the Israelites not worshiping those pagan false gods is because God knows the ultimate truth that is sort of built into the fabric of reality. You will become like the thing that you spend your time thinking about and dwelling on and really adoring or worshiping. You will become like that thing. You will become like that thing. If you spend all your time thinking about money, guess what? You will never be enough to other people. You will consistently be used, or you will use 
other people for what they can give you because that's how people use money. If you spend your time worshiping the gods and goddesses of sex and sexuality, guess what? You'll become depraved. Or you will use yourself and abuse others in ways that absolutely and horrifically dehumanize both of you. We could go on down the list of things, and God knows that this is rooted in reality. That's just how it is. And so, that's why he's insistent. Do not worship these other things, because you will become like them, and you will destroy yourself and each other. And that is how it is. That's why, as a parent to spiritual children, okay, I was, uh, I think I mentioned this the other day, maybe we were talking about this in the office the other day. It helps me when I read the Old Testament. It helps me to read the Old Testament like a parent, God, is speaking to spiritual children, the Israelites. There are flashes of brilliance. They're faithful in the face of adversity. They're strong. They're courageous. They reach out to God when things are tough and they, and they re, or, or they repent, you know, like there's like there's flashes of brilliance. And there's also moments where you sit there and think, what on earth were you thinking? I have asked myself <laughs> so many times the last uh, five and a half years, what is wrong with this kid? <laughs> and my kids are good kids. Y'all know my kids. They're generally pretty good kids, but man, there are things, there are times when I sit back and think, what Jerry knows, because he's got, he's got kids who are about this age too. Why did you think that was a good idea? Maybe you can look back on your own life, right, and think, oh my goodness, why did I think it was a good idea to do X, Y, and Z? Okay, you, you get it. I think it's helpful that even though these are adults and they're people, they're spiritual children. And God, the good Father, is talking to these spiritual children. Let's rewind back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. We read part of this statement in Deuteronomy 5. But we're going to read the whole thing. This is the first time that God pronounces this about himself to the Israelites. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. This is one of my most favorite verses in all the Bible. And this is one of the verses that gets cited the most by the rest of the Old Testament. In all the different kinds of books that make up the Old Testament, in wisdom literature, in the prophetic literature, in the historical books, these verses get alluded to in one way or another throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. Let's read these. I'll uh, pull these up here. Okay. God is, God has just given Moses a second copy of the, of the Ten Commandments. Uh, by the way, Moses was the first person to uh, download uh, something from, uh, from the cloud onto a tablet. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> a little Bible joke for you. Watch out. That's, that's actually why I was in school this long, to get all the Bible jokes I can. 
The Lord descended in the so Ezekiel thirty uh, excuse me Exodus Exodus thirty four we'll starting verse five gives a little context. The Lord and remember when you see in your Bibles the Lord written in all caps like that, that is God's own special name. Uh, we think it's pronounced Yahweh. Not totally sure because Jews were so careful not to take His name in vain that they protected it. So a lot of times you'll hear like an Orthodox Jew today will usually just refer to God as the name. In Hebrew, it's Hashem, the name. So you might hear somebody say that. Anyway, this is the divine name when you see it in all caps, and small caps in your Bible. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name. You can see why they call it the name now. The Lord, the Lord, passed before him and proclaimed. Once again, now we're in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. All right. I've had some time to digest these verses. What, what stands out to you there in verses 6 and 7? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. That's that's justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's uh, trying to capture that idea of God being completely merciful and completely justice and completely wrathful. Like God is complete of all these things that contradict each other, but uh, in a way that we cannot comprehend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How long? does it say that God maintains steadfast love to the thousandth generation? Okay. He's not... You're right, Jerry. It's, it means forever. It's like when Pete says anything is a billion something. It's like, a billion million. Buddy, <laughs> man, he told me the other day... I heard him, I heard him doing this. He told me the other day... I, I heard him counting... One billion and one, one billion and two, one billion and three. And I, I, he told me afterwards, it's like, Dad, I counted to a billion. <laughs> and I wanted to tell him, buddy, if you tried to count to a billion and took one number per second, you'd be here forever. <laughs> but it's kind of like that, right? So like take Genesis, or t- excuse me, take this passage here in Exodus and make it into the, the kindergarten's version, keeping steadfast love for a billion generations. That means forever. How, how long does it say that he will visit the iniquity of the parents on the children in verse 7? Three or four generations? Yeah. Oh, man, that sounds really harsh. Yikes. That's not cool, God. What if these kids 
didn't do anything. You got the answer in verse 6. Or in, at the beginning of verse 7. What does God do? Forgive. This is how God and Moses and the prophets and the people who wrote Proverbs and things like that, this is, and Psalms, this is how God presents himself and everybody else who saw God do these things, this is how they see God. He is, well, it's easy to get hung up on this idea of punishing iniquity to the third and fourth generations. God, what did the grandkids do? Well, it's easy to get hung up on that while neglecting the overwhelming love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, sin. The punishment, I think, is the negative effects of sin upon the household. In the Bible and in our own lives, there is a concept known as generational sin where the sin of previous generations does sometimes have real and ugly consequences in your own families. And I don't need a show of hands to know that a lot of us in here have dealt with that. That's just how it is. That's how it is. But God very clearly takes into account each individual's choice at the very first part of that verse forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin by god's grace god forgives the repentant and the humble and repentance i mean as tough as it is repentance is it's the necess it's the necessary condition because repentance sort of realigns us with God's vision for humanity. And so probably the passage that I most want you to be aware of is this one that we just read. That yes, this happens. God is wrathful. He's vengeful. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But that, even that passage, that idea where God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay that gives the other person a chance to repent instead of me with my sword at your throat saying, you dishonored my sister. You know, starting off by saying, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. <laughs> okay. You dishonored my family member. Even eye for an eye was a way to limit the warfare between families and tribes. Let, let the judgment be commensurate with the, with the action. Don't escalate. Remember how everything seemed like it was just the worst in the Middle East for the last 30 years? If you're not 30, don't worry about it. But it kind of has felt like that way for a while. It's the continual escalation of violence that eye for an eye is supposed to limit that. I'm not going to destroy each. I'm not going to kill you because your cow injured my son. I'm not going to kill you for that. Okay? But this passage right here 
I think is the answer to this. And this issue about God being evil source doesn't take into adequate account the rest of what is going on in the Old Testament. A little past time, but I want to open it up if there are any questions. There's a whirlwind tour about God, and I didn't even mention the New Testament (laughs) that much, but this passage here, if anybody wants to know about God, I think that's the place to go for that. Guys, I really appreciate y'all. Y'all have a good day. Do we need to sing Happy Birthday to Keely?